God, help us to do that this morning just to give you the praise you deserve, all the glory, all the honor, all the praise this morning. We love you. We lift you up this morning. In your precious name, we pray. Amen. Put your hands together, sing it with us, here we go. Come let us worship our King. Come let us bow at His feet. He has the great
God, they're great things, but he is great. Amen? Let's sing this. Oh, Lord, my God, when I love someone, consider
chorus again. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art! How great Thou art! Then sings my soul. this morning church morning church today's reading will be out of Romans 11 25 through 36 for I do not want you brethren to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him, that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Please join me in reading this week's memory verse. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Romans 11:33. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Thank you so much for us all just being able to make it here and to learn more about you, God. I pray that we just all open our hearts and that we can just truly listen to Trent and what he has to say. We're all very grateful for him and what he has uh, been able to do in this church. I pray that you just speak through him truthfully and uh, with wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh 
generated us you've made us alive again and we thank you for that we praise you for that so Lord as we give you this offering I just pray that you just take it you use it to further your kingdom to bless the city and to, to send your gospel and your word to the ends of the earth in your precious name we pray amen you may be seated
Good morning, church family. Good to see you this morning. It's a joy and a privilege to get to open God's Word with you. Last time I spoke, if I remember correctly, I spoke in 1 Corinthians 15, and we talked about just that, seeing the Savior face to face. One day we will see Him as He is face to face. And today we are going to be talking about seeking the Savior. So if you have a copy of God's Word, we're going to go straight into the text. Um, and but, but let me explain a couple things. So go ahead, if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and open it. First book of the New Testament, Matthew, and you can join us in Matthew chapter 6. Now let me say a few things about this. Um, it is typical of me uh, to uh, preach through one certain text of Scripture, as it is typical of our pastors to do, right? Um, but this morning we're going to be talking about a subject, and the subject is prayer. So if you have your worship folders along with your Bible, you can go ahead and pull out in your worship folder an outline you can lay beside your Bible. Now, just note that outline is not uh, necessarily God's Word. That is me putting together um, uh, how we're going to walk through the message today. So put it next to God's Word and obey God's Word, not, not just mine, right? So or not mine, uh, obey God's way over mine, all right? Uh, I am a fallible man bringing before you the infallible word. So let's look at the word together. But before we do so, like I said, we're going to be talking about prayer. And typically, as I mentioned, I preach um, exegetically, meaning uh, line by line, word by word, phrase by phrase. And in fact, I would argue, as would our pastors, that it is the greatest diet, normal diet, for a hungry church to feed on the word of God, to walk through text by text, line by line, word by word, because it's the best way to put the microphone closest to God. This is what his word says. In other words, to slowly walk through and soak up in proper context what God seeks to communicate to his children. But I do believe that in certain instances, with certain subjects, it's often helpful to see a truth as it presents itself throughout the Scriptures, across the Scriptures, to look at a topic from Scripture and examine it throughout the Scripture so that we might be faithful to behold the greatness of that topic and obey the instruction from God according to the full counsel of His Word. So, with that being said, here's what we're going to do this morning as we see the gracious gift of prayer across the Scriptures. We're going to approach the topic of prayer. We're going to get an aerial view of prayer as presented in the Bible. And lastly, we're going to anchor our study of prayer in Jesus' teaching of prayer to his disciples in Matthew chapter 6. So, unless you are really good at flipping different scriptures... Uh, quickly, you can go ahead and be in Matthew chapter 6. I will be there eventually, and that's where we'll spend the majority of our time once we get there. Uh, I have a friend named uh, Tavares Uzigui. Don't try to say it. Uh, it took me a long time to learn it, right? Tavares Uzigui. He's a minister at a college in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, and I've had him speak at different events. And Tavares, anytime he's not preaching uh, line by line, word by word, he says, now, now just you got to know, he, uh, he is like basketball, big man, could beat me up with his fingers, right? He says, now don't be tripping about the flipping, right? So we're going to flip through some scriptures, right? Just know that I, I have done my best, I pray, to be right and, and true and preach these texts rightly, right? I, I don't want to just cherry pick verses. But 
as we approach the topic of prayer, get an aerial view of prayer as presented in the Bible, and lastly, anchor our study of prayer in Jesus' teaching of it to his disciples in chapter 6 of Matthew, let's first admit something. Prayer is a discipline most of us can and should be better about. Can and should improve upon. For so many of us, myself included, our lives probably don't model the instruction of 1 Thessalonians 5 where Paul says, pray without ceasing. And my, my, as I was kind of looking at this message this week, I was thinking, why do you think that is? I've got three reasons, though I'm sure there are more. I have three, or better yet, three, three reasons, or better yet, three excuses we, we don't pray. Let me give you three. It's this. Uh, the first one is a statement like, I'm just, I'm too tired. Like, I'm worn out. It's been a busy day, busy week. I'm too tired. Right? This is what we see in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus' disciples when he tells them to watch and pray as he prays before he would be taken by Judas Iscariot. Watch and pray. And three times Jesus goes to the disciples, Peter, James, and John, and says, why do you sleep? Be watchful and pray. I'm, I'm too tired. Maybe another reason or excuse, if we may say so, is I can't focus. I just can't focus. I, I have a trouble focusing. And honestly, I think that's probably pretty true. Um, if, if you look at our culture today and our society today, this is a genuine problem, right? Uh, we struggle with silence because we're used to information overload. I can find out the news before it's on the TV by social media. Whether it's true or not, I don't know, right? Phones, social media. Uh, in fact, I just read a book recently called Digital Minimalism where it kind of targets the problem that we face or the tar problem that we see with not being able to focus. Now, now, here's the third excuse, if I may. It's this, not I'm too tired, not I can't focus, but lastly, I, I'm just too busy. I, I'm just too busy. Now, maybe you won't vocalize that or wouldn't vocalize that, but maybe that's what you're thinking. But let me just say this before we go to Scripture together. I think this is the most dangerous of the three. I'm just, I'm too busy. Because sometimes we feel that the issue at hand that we might ought to pray for is just too important or too pressing to, and so we just want to just take immediate action ourselves. That we just need to quote unquote take care of it. That we don't have time to stop and pray. You don't know my schedule. The reformer Martin Luther encountered probably this very often arising within his ministry. And it's for this reason he's noted to have said, I have so much to do today that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Now, to think that we don't have time to stop and pray, or to think that instead of praying for an issue at hand, we must just tackle it ourselves, is to forget our desperate position and God's divine providence. It's to forget our need for God to supply our need. And hear me, when you see that being the case throughout scriptures, God makes it clear you need. You only have to look at maybe the book of Malachi like I just walked through with our young adults for God to say, I will discipline you. You will be like Fuller's soap. And in Fuller's soap, you basically put bleach on an object and beat it over a rock until the object is clean and pure. 
refiner's fire, mentioned uh, like a silversmith in James chapter 1, when the heat is on the pot, the impurities rise and they're scraped off. God might just humble us to make us recognize our need for him so that we might not say, I just don't have time. God may, in his divine discipline, go to the extent of making you desperate so that you may know your need for him. Because your consistency in prayer and the health of your prayer life is directly related to the desperation you feel you have for God. Are you desperate? So here's what I want to do. As we look at the topic of prayer, it would not be right of me to not pray and pray together. So let's pray together. God, I pray that you would be with us as we open your word as a church. Lord, that your spirit would do that which it does and that which it says it does within the text of your scripture that it would lead us into truth. Lord, that you would be glorified above all in this place. That we would treasure you. And, and, and Lord, help us when we think that we are self-sufficient Christians. Lord, we would not have if you did not provide. So Lord, we need you. And Lord, lastly, we, we ask that you would forgive us our sins for, we have, for where we have trespassed against you, or for, for, for where we have sinned against you. Holding the promise of your word in 1 John 1, 9 that says, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you that you hold us in the palm of your hand, and we pray that we would delight in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you have your outline out, that's where we're going to begin. Um, as we approach the topic of prayer, let's begin with, number one, a definition of prayer, a simple definition of prayer. Now, I've got a lot to talk about this morning, so I do tend, as I've been told, to talk quickly, so I hope you can listen quickly, all right? So, number one, a definition of prayer. Now, across the scriptures, we see somewhere around 650 650 prayers in the Bible from start to finish. Approximately, also, 450 of those prayers we see recorded answers to. So, we can just say pretty quickly, just by that, we could pursue it more, but just by that, though prayer might possibly be foreign in, in a few of our lives, or not familiar enough, it is most certainly not foreign within the text of Scripture. And prayer, in its most basic definition, hear me, most basic definition, could be called communication with your creator, or communicating with your creator. Now, if you're not content with that definition, know that I'm not necessarily either. That's why I still have nine pages, all right? But at its most basic definition, prayer could be considered a Christian's communication with their creator. It includes expressing our dependence upon him, aligning our life with his will. See that in 1 John 5? Making known our desire for his will to be done on earth, Matthew 6. Asking him for our daily needs, Matthew 6. Casting our cares upon him and entrusting him with maybe a family member or a friend's salvation. 1 Timothy, if I remember correctly, 2. So, so let me work with, if I may, a, a little bit longer definition of prayer. 
that you have in your notes and you'll see on the screen. In the act of prayer, we profess God's sovereign power, confess our desperation for his provision, and express our desire for his presence. Say it again. In the act of prayer, we profess God's sovereign power. He is in control of all. Lamentations 3.37, nothing happens without his hand. So we trust in him. Second one, we confess our desperation for his provision. We, we, profess, we confess we need him. And we express our desire for his presence, trust, need, and desire. So this is the working definition that we will take throughout our study this morning. Number two. We're about to be in a text of Scripture. I promise you that. Number two, the gift of prayer. The gift of prayer. Matthew 27, if you'd like to turn there, you, you may. We'll be in Matthew. We'll be in Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 4. But Matthew 27, I want to turn your attention to a text that details what took place when Christ died and its significance in Christians' lives. Matthew 27, 45 through 51. Now Jesus has minister to thousands of people. He has been accused of blaspheming God. And he has been crucified on a sinner's cross. And upon that cross, at the sixth hour, verse 45 says, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth. And about the ninth hour on the cross, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Ali, Ali, lama sabachthani, means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this, this man's calling Elijah. And one of them at, at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. Now, there's so much we could talk about in that part of the text. But verse 51 says this, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Now, let's talk about that for just a moment, because I don't want us to move quickly past the significance of that moment. Not only is Christ taking upon himself the, the wrath that is justly due us for our disobedience against God in our place, the wrath of God that is just due us, he took upon himself in our place as our substitute. But what this text says in verse 51 is that there was this curtain that, that split from top to bottom in the temple. And if you don't maybe know much about the, the, the temple structure in, in Jesus' day. Um, know that uh, when, when Jews went to the temple, there was a court of Gentiles toward the outside of the temple. Then there was a, a court of women. Then there was a court of Israel. Then there was um, a, a, a court of priests. And then there was the ho holy place. And then there was the most holy place, kind of at the, the inner sanctuary, the inner place of the temple. And in that most holy place, also called the Holy of Holies, there would be a, a, a priest, a high priest, that would only go in that place once a year on the Day of Atonement. He would make uh, a, a sacrifice for his sin and for the sin of 
Israel. And guess what separated the holy place from the most holy place? A large curtain. I mean, real large. In fact, um, ancient Jewish commentaries tell us it's something around like 60 to 80 feet high, somewhere around 30 feet wide, and I even read in a couple places, I don't know if it's true or not, so just don't take my word for it, but three to four inches thick. This is a large curtain. Um, I've seen the power team, if you've ever seen that evangelistic ministry, they can rip a phone book. Ripping a curtain like that, yeah, that's impossible. Like, and not only that, it happened from top to bottom. So what we just read in Matthew 27 was that when Christ died, the veil was torn from top to bottom. No human tore that thing. Let me just say very clearly, God did. And he did so to reveal and show and broadcast something great that had just taken place that is actually explained in Hebrews chapter 10. So we're in Hebrews chapter 10 now, verses 19 through 20. And it says in verse 19 through 20 that the faithful enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way which he opened for us through the veil, that is, through his flesh. So, so Jesus' flesh being torn was in the same moment God tearing the veil for us. So when God's flesh was being torn, he was tearing the curtain of the temple. And now those who have trusted in Christ and whose sacrifice has paid for the penalty of our sin, the wrath of God upon us in full, we now can enter the temple, that is the presence of God, through his flesh that was broken for us. So, so what does that mean? Well, once a year, like I said, the high priest had to enter the Holy of Holies through the veil. Now Christ is now our superior high priest, and as believers in his finished work, we partake in his better priesthood, and we can now approach God through Christ. The only true access we see to the, the special presence of God in the Old Testament, yes, God is omnipresent, has always been omnipresent, but his special dwelling place was with his people in the Old Testament, within the temple complex, and the access to God was through the curtain. Now hear me, it's through Christ through Christ. No longer through a curtain in a temple made with hands. We have access to God through Christ. Jesus Christ through his death has removed the barrier between God and man. And now we may approach God with confidence and boldness. That curtain, as long as it stood, showed God is holy. We are not, and we cannot approach him. But Christ became a sacrifice for us, bearing upon himself the full punishment of sin in our place and gave to us his righteousness. So we can approach God, not through a curtain, but through Christ. Apart from Christ, therefore, and apart from his sacrificial death upon the cross, bearing upon himself the wrath of God towards sin in the place of sinners, hear me, we would have no access to God. None. Being our once and for all sacrifice, paying the penalty for our sin on our account, we have access to God. And because the punishment was full and was final, we can approach God boldly. Christ is our access. Ephesians 2 puts it this way. He is our introducer. He brings us before God. 
there is a reason, hear me, there, there's a reason we pray in Jesus' name, amen. It, it is not to invoke some uh, magical spell for us to just receive whatever we claim in his name, because that's not true. 1 John 2 and 1 John 5 say that's definitely not true. Rather, we pray in Jesus' name because without Jesus, our prayers would merely be pointless babblings of people destined for destruction. So therefore, because of God's gracious gift of his own life, believers can now approach the Father through the Son by the Spirit and are able to do so with humility and confidence. What a gift we have been given in Jesus. And what a gift we have in prayer. Prayer should not be seen as just something we have to do. It should be always seen as something we get to do. It should not ever be seen by a believer as a burden. It should and always should be seen by believers as a divine blessing because the grace of God, if you have trusted in Christ, you can uh, at any point today get on your knees and approach the God of the universe in prayer. On the way home today, this afternoon, and at your bedside tonight, it is a gracious gift of God. Number three, the importance of prayer. Now, of course, number three being the importance of prayer, it goes without saying we must not think that prayer is not important. I want to turn you to uh, a text in Exodus 32. Feel free to turn there. We'll be in Matthew 6 in a minute. We're going to spend quite a bit of time in Matthew 6, so I'm watching my time because we're going to spend quite a bit of time in Matthew 6. But... In uh, Exodus 32, we see something take place. In Exodus 32, uh, God's people have just been led through the Red Sea, away from the Egyptians that were holding them as captives. Of course, we know just a little bit about Moses, probably, that Moses um, was uh, directed by God to go to Pharaoh. And what did Moses say to Pharaoh? Let my people go, right? So that God might be worshipped by his people. Let my people go go. And so God brought a series of ten plagues. At the tenth plague, Pharaoh, Pharaoh said go, changed his mind, ran after him. God led them through the Red Sea, closed the Red Sea on the Egyptians. Then they get to the other side of the Red Sea, and before too long, they make a golden statue. And they worship that statue having an all-night, let's just say, scandalous group party. Not a good idea. And God confronted Moses on Mount Sinai and told him, my wrath will burn hot against them and consume them. In other words, like a parent, um, I'm, a, I'm a parent now of two, um, which is awesome, but as a parent, like saying, like, I'm going to kill you, Right? but actually meaning it. But Moses, in Exodus 32, implored the Lord, his God, and said, 
Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven on all this land that I have promised I will give to you for, sorry, give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Now, just know something real quick. Moses doesn't defend the character of the people's actions. He implores the Lord for his promises, relying on them. And in Exodus 32, we see the Lord relented from the disaster that he was going to bring on his people. Hear me. Moses prayed and God didn't kill the Israelites. Now, I'm going to follow a train of thought of, of a pastor that I think follows this pretty well. You might ask, uh, what if Moses refused to pray? Would that mean that they would have not been saved? And Would that mean that it was not God's will to save them after all? And, and what does it mean that if I fail to pray about something God wants me to pray for, does that mean the thing that I didn't pray about wasn't God's will after all? Or would God have just gotten someone else to pray it? You may begin to follow that and think, I have no clue. My head is like spinning. Uh, what? Right? I don't even know the questions you just asked, but they sounded really confusing. Right? Those questions, let me just say this, are the wrong questions to even ask in the first place. Right? Scripture never think, teaches us to think about the will of God in a way such as that. In fact, um, I'm going to quote from a Princeton theologian, just like another pastor has in the past for the same text. A.A. A. Hodge said this, and I thought this was good. Does God know the day that you'll die? Yeah, right? Uh, has he appointed that day? Yes, right? Can you do anything to change that day? No, right? You can't do anything to change that day. Th then why do you eat? Well, you eat to live, right? Like, duh, you, you, you got to eat. If you don't eat, you're going to die. Then if you don't eat and you die... Would that be the day that God appointed for you to die? And here's what A.A. A. Hodge says, brilliant mind. He's like, stop asking stupid questions and just eat because that's the preordained way God has designed for you to live, <laughs> right? I thought that was phenomenal, right? Brilliant mind. Just stop asking dumb questions and eat. Hear me. God's will, yes, will be done. But God has commanded us to pray. And what we see in this passage is that when God's people pray, he responds. Prayer is extremely important. Let me give you another example, because if, if Moses maybe wasn't enough, see that even Jesus saw the importance of prayer. He needed time with his father, even when it seemed things were more pressing. Luke 5. 12 through 16, Jesus was in one of the cities. There came a man full of leprosy. The leper um, probably charging toward Jesus because he was probably out in a leper village being chucked rocks at, saying, leper, 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 roll out. Right? He fell on his face before the Lord, and he begged the Lord. He said this, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So much in that, but I'm not going to pursue it. Uh, and Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him, said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left the man. And he charged him, Jesus did, to tell no one but go and show yourself to a priest and, and, and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad. And, and great crowds gathered to hear Jesus and be healed of their infirmities. But you know what it says? But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. You see the same thing in Mark chapter 1. If I remember correctly, think I do? 
uh, Jesus was at Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house, I think, uh, and, and he had just healed a bunch of people, and people were probably banging on his door to say, you can heal me, you can heal me, you can heal me, and he leaves. And he says, I, I didn't come for physical healing. I came for eternal healing. I've got to go preach about the kingdom of God. So hear me, the Bible records Jesus praying 25 different times during his earthly ministry. Times like this one and times like Mark 1 where he could have healed more people. But he often wouldn't so that he might instead preach or pray. He didn't go without communication with his father. Even in the garden, Jesus prayed with sweat for the father's will to be done, fixing his eyes on the significance of the pain and yet salvation of what the uh, years hours ahead of him would, would, what would take place. Prayer is extremely important. Don't think for a minute prayer is not. Number four, the heart in prayer. The heart in prayer. Number four, if you're on your outline. The heart in prayer. Now, the Bible not only tells us that prayer is very important, but it also tells us that the way that we approach God matters. The way that we approach God absolutely matters. You say, well, no, it doesn't matter just to approach God. The Bible does tell us that the way that we approach him does, in fact, matter. And there are three ways that I want to share with you that give us an example of that very truth. Three examples of how we should not approach God. They're in your outline. Number one, we should not approach him with self-righteousness. You probably are familiar with the Pharisee, story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus tells a parable. He tells it to some men who trusted in their own righteousness, treating others with contempt. And in verse 10 of Luke 18, he says, Two men went up to the temple to pray. One man a Pharisee, one man a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus God, I thank you that I am not like that tax collector. Like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or like him. I fast twice a week. I give tithes on all that I get. And just for a moment, I don't have time to stay on every text. I'm going to really be in Matthew 6. But just for a moment, consider this. The Pharisees who were trusting in their own righteousness are like, this guy's a stud. Fast, what was he, was he? Fast twice a week? That's more than average. They didn't have to if they were a Pharisee, but like I think one time a year or something like that. They were like, this guy, oh yeah, God's going to go after the tax collector, right? But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And this is what Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Here's what Jesus is saying. You need to recognize you are in no place to deserve salvation. That you should come before God with humility and not arrogance. These men did not know how desperate they truly were. And he says, you don't come before God proudly with a heart bent on ridicule. In other words, arrogance comes with a resume. But authenticity comes before God with repentance. 
We should not approach him with self-righteousness. We should also not approach God for recognition. So in Matthew 6, yes, we're in Matthew 6 now, and from now on we will be in Matthew 6, all right? Matthew 6, we should not approach him for recognition. Matthew 6 verse 5 says, as Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in synagogues and at the street corners that they may, here is, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Jesus is saying what they're doing is nothing more than a pretentious practice for the purpose of other people's praise. God says, what they seek after, they will get, but nothing more. They'll get recognition, but that'll be their only reward. So, so maybe we should just consider for a moment, how are we approaching God? Are we doing so so that people might look at us and say, wow, he knows a lot, or, or wow, he is pious, or wow, he is um, uh, sincere, or is it actually sincere? Do we come to, to God with a resume, or do we come to God with repentance, recognizing truly who he is and who we are not? Number three, we should not approach him not only with, not with uh, self-righteousness, we should not approach him for recognition, but we should not approach him by repetition either. Now, let me explain what I mean by that, but look at verse seven in Matthew chapter six. When you pray, do not eat so I heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, when I say that we should not seek God by repetition, I am not saying you shouldn't repeat prayer requests, right? So if there is someone struggling with something in your life, a family member who is sick, or um, maybe crying out to God for a lost loved one, yes, repeat that prayer request. But Matthew is encountering people Attempting to encounter God through mindless, mechanical repetition. Empty phrases in order to somehow uh, uh, attain the attention of God. Saying uh, a God's name over and over and over and over and over, like the Gentiles do. Bail, 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 bail. Right? Words over and over. Words stripped of any, any genuine intellectual thought. Words without the mind, and therefore words without the heart. Right? Now, you can think for yourself for a moment where you might see that in your context, where there's just babbling, but no actual pursuit of sincere words before the Father. Words without the mind, and therefore words without the heart. The heart of the matter, in the way that we approach God, therefore, based upon these three things, and there's, though there's probably a lot more, the heart of the matter is truly a matter of the heart. Matthew chapter 6, still in Matthew 6, we'll stay in there, verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who in, sees in secret will reward you. Now, if you just take this text, I said it by itself, and you might think that uh, corporate prayer is not a thing. It's totally a thing, other texts of Scripture, but he's battling what is insincere prayer. This is no desire in Matthew 6, 6 to be seen, heard. It's not insincere. It's a desire to just simply get alone and get before God. David Platt says clearly, desire for God is at the heart of prayer. We pray because we want God, because time with him is what we crave. And we know, if, if, you're, if you maybe have, have been uh, 
married or, or, or in a relationship, you, you want time with that person. And you know that time spent with that person creates a, a, a unity of affection. Intimacy is created by unity of affection. And intimacy is continued by consistent communication. We pray to make our wants his wants. We pray because we need to desire what he desires, and we want to want what he wants. We pray, in your notes, to, uh, uh, not to just show off our godliness, but to seek his will. 1 John 5 says, pray according to his will. His will is revealed in his word. And so we pray according to his will, not to show off our godliness. Number five, if you're in your notes still, the instruction for prayer. I, uh, I ran cross country in high school, and um, you can probably tell that because I get told I look like a beanpole or something like skinny thing, I don't know. Um, but uh, I could not run like I used to now, so if you wonder why I'm not running 5K, it's because I'm a lot more out of shape than you think I am. Um, but uh, I, we, had, uh, we had cross country and we had track. Track was my favorite sport. We had a coach named, um, well, I won't say his name, but we had a coach named a name, and uh, he would gather us before the track event every single time we had a track meet, get us together in a circle, and he would uh, uh, pray the, the Lord's Prayer. Now, um, this coach, uh, very uh, kind gentleman, um, would gather us together and did not know the Lord's Prayer. And so uh, it would go something along like this. It would like, you know, uh, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We need bread. Um, God, give us a good race today. Uh, God, we thank you for good food. And uh, uh, for thine is the glory. The, you know, it, it would just kind of shift in and out of it. And I'm like, I don't think that's how that goes, right? Uh, and then you would say, amen, let's go, let's go, right? He, he had been probably from a background where uh, he had seen the Lord's Prayer as just a mantra to be recited, right? And so he did his best to recite it, and, you know, he's doing his best, but way off, right? Just, I mean, just not even close. But sincerely, I think when we look in Matthew chapter 6, while it's definitely not a bad idea to pray the Lord's Prayer, we see from just the context itself, the Lord's Prayer is not a religious mantra intended to just simply be recited. This is in your notes as well. It's a God-centered guideline be followed. The Lord's Prayer is not a religious mantra to simply be recited. It's a God-centered guideline to be followed. So let's look, number five, at the instruction for prayer. And there's four subpoints. I'm very helped by a few different pastors on these subpoints. I'm sure they've got it from other pastors as well, right? But four points. I really like David Platt's outline with these four points. So here we go. Number one, small number one. Ask God when we pray. He's instructed us how to pray. And he says, first and foremost, at the beginning of your petition, ask God for his. Here it is. Glory. What, maybe your excuse is, I just don't know how to pray. Here's, here's what Jesus says. It's written in the book, right? In the Bible. This is how you should pray. Ask God for his glory. That's what he says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, just we don't use the word hallowed very often, right? It, it means um, to, to, to glorify, to treat something as holy. We don't make God holy. We treat him as holy. So we're asking for God's glory in and through our lives. We're asking God to glorify himself and make himself known to me and across all peoples of all nations. We, when we begin our prayer, so often we focus on other things, and yet Jesus says this is what you should focus on. Your purpose in life is not to fulfill your potential or find your purpose. Your purpose is pretty clear in Scripture. It's to live for God's glory, and that should be the heart of every prayer that you pray. 
I want your glory. I live for the fame of your name, not the fame of my own. So often we pray for so many good things and yet neglect God's glory being known. We pray that we'll have a good time, pray for a good game, pray that everything will go good. Not necessarily a bad thing, but if God loves his glory, which he does, right, he acts throughout Scripture. We could have a whole sermon on the fact that God acts throughout Scripture for his name to be magnified. And if God loves his glory, our purpose, and our purpose on earth is to glorify him, the point of our prayer should ultimately be to point to him. God wants this to happen. And so when we're praying, we're not asking God to do something that he didn't want to do. We're praying that he would do what's most passionate upon his heart. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like we want people to recognize who the true king is, but we know that they can't, and we want them to be a part of the kingdom of God, but we know that they can't be a part of the kingdom of God until they believe in the king. How can you belong to the church without believing in the head of the church? We want his kingdom to be known, his will to be done, his kingdom to come. Number two, we don't only ask God for his gifts, but he's also instructed us to, or glory, he's also instructed us to ask for his gifts. Verse 11, I know my time, follow fast with me. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know in Exodus 16 that these Israelites in the wilderness were hungry. And God would provide, and he did. He did through manna, this honey-like wafer stuff, right? I don't really know what much about it, but it's honey-like wafer stuff, okay? And he provided their food. But when he provided their food, he would not let them keep it overnight. Why? Well, I think why is explained in Deuteronomy 8.3. He humbled you, and he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which he didn't know, which I still don't know, right? Nor did you fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but, by, but lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, they had to learn to trust God day by day for food. Went to bed without food, had to trust that God would provide it the next day. Now, that does not mean if we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, that in, the next time you start getting hungry, instead of grabbing a bag of Doritos, you grab the Bible and start eating it. It's not what you to do, right? But what you do do... It, do do sorry. What you should do, there we go, uh, is, is trust in him to provide your every need, to know that your life is ultimately in his hand and not in your own. Saying on a daily basis, God, we have desire that only you can fulfill. We have hunger that only you can provide for. Now, maybe your question is this. Why do we ask for uh, daily bread if, just be honest, right, many in our culture aren't lacking? In fact, the opposite is almost true. We got a ton. Why would we ask for that? Well, because of the context, I think of Exodus chapter 16, we need to pray to guard ourselves from thinking that you can provide bread for yourself apart from God, that you can find satisfaction in this life apart from your Savior. We must not forget that we do not need the materials of this world nearly as much as we need the maker of this world. We need to seek God in prayer to protect us from thinking that you can be satisfied without relying on Christ for your needs. There is no such thing as a self-sustaining Christian life, and prayer brings us back to that realization. Number three, not only ask God for his glory, ask God for his gifts, but ask God for his grace. Verse 12 in Matthew 6, forgive us our debts, that is where we have sinned against others, but ultimately against God, as we have also forgiven our debtors, where people have sinned against us. Now, recognizing our sinfulness, asking for forgiveness is no small request. 
This is not something just to request or ramble through before we do what we do in track. This is requesting restoration with our, in our relationship with God that's been hindered due to our, wretched, our own wretchedness. I read a book, um, and I thought it was really, really good, and James Bryant and Mac Brunson said that you would think that the closer a man comes to God, the cleaner and holier, holier he will feel. In fact, the opposite is true. The closer you get to God, the brighter the light is, and the more you see yourself as sinful. So we ask God to forgive us as we forgive others. And I'll just turn you down to look at verse 14 for a second. Look at a warning about unforgiveness. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Why does God say this? Why is it so important to forgive others' trespasses? Because, hear me, hear quickly, a failure to forgive Others, their sins against you is a complete contradiction to the gospel that you have believed in because you were dead and an enemy against God. That's what Romans 5 says, and yet God died for his enemy. It's a complete contradiction to ask God for the same forgiveness you don't show others. Number four, moving quickly, ask God for his guidance. Verse 13, lead us not into our, sorry, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, from the book of James, chapter 1, we know that God does not tempt anyone. But we know, should know, based upon our own even experience, that we are truly prone to wonder. I like the hymn that says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God that I love. And so we're praying that God would redirect us. Not only give us protection from temptation, but give protect, protection in temptation. And so often we have a tendency to think of ourselves, and I'm pointing at myself, but think of ourselves as mature Christians and look at other Christians who have fallen and say, I'd, I'd never do that. And I, I truly hope that's true. But 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, before telling us that God will give us a way out, he says, let any of you thinks, who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. If it wasn't for God's grace and guidance in your life, you might just succumb to the temptation that other, another person did. Only Christ can overcome the ad adversary and deliver us from evil, so it is only because of his presence in our lives that we can overcome temptation. We need him to guide us. So if you're dealing with temptation or uh, you're, you're, you're dealing with playing with sin, the best thing that you can do is to go to your room, shut your door, get before your gracious God, pray for, pray in repentance and pray for his grace, saying, I need you. You cannot overcome temptation on your own. Get before God and pray. And number six, lastly, the joy of prayer. The joy of prayer. There are so many things to talk about when it comes to prayer. So many things I could have mentioned in 1 John 2, 1 John 5. But when I was thinking about every excuse you could think of for why you might not pray, number one, let's go back through our outline. The definition of prayer, if your excuse is, I don't really know what it is, hopefully you don't have that excuse anymore. Number two, if your excuse is, I I'm just not feeling like it right now, 
Maybe you not recognize the great gift of prayer. Number three, maybe you say, I, I, it's, it, it's not important. God's will will just be done. Maybe you recognize the importance of prayer. Number four, maybe you thought, what if I pray wrongly? Hopefully, at looking at number four, you might see the way you should not pray. Number five, maybe you say, I don't know where to start. Hopefully, you don't have the excuse anymore of I don't, I don't know where to start. And number six, the joy of prayer. Do not forsake the opportunity and do not find excuses not to pray. Let's take, as a church, every opportunity to because we know our need. Let's pray as the Apostle Paul told us unceasingly. So would you bow your heads and pray with me now? As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, during our time of response this morning, we will sing. And I believe we're singing, Lord, I need you. If that's wrong, I apologize. But during our time of response, if you need to pray and just be seated and pray, please do that. Maybe you, you, you want to come forward and pray here at these steps. Know that there's nothing magical about these steps. These steps just show to you that, or maybe show to others that you might need praying over. Maybe this is the first time you've prayed in a while. Pray. Maybe if you've never prayed, maybe your first prayer is to say, God, I recognize you are holy and I am sinful and I recognize I need to repent from my sin and trust in you. So during our time of response, if you want to stand and sing, let's stand and sing. But if you need time with, prayer, time with God in prayer, spend that time with him. God, we thank you that you're a God who is with us. That he was made a way of salvation through your son and who is our ever-present help in time of trouble. Lord, I thank you that we can approach you in prayer and I pray that we would so more regularly than we do now. What a blessing it is, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'll be down at the front if you'd like to talk and uh, so will a few of our church members. Let's stand and sing or sit and pray.
Good morning, church. Thank you for letting me have the privilege of bringing before you God's word. I have two guys, both in student ministry and young adult ministry with me. These are the Manos, Dylan and Trevor. And uh, though Pastor Bob is not here, I've been watching them closely for what to do in these situations uh, because they would both like to um, unite with us as church members at FBC Tampa. So if you're excited about that, will you just affirm that? So I'm excited for them. Of course, uh, at our next members meeting, I think, is that's where we'll vote on it as members. So I just wanted to um, just put them before the church, and I hope you're excited about that. Hey, if you need someone to pray with, I'll be um, with my wife. Uh, I don't think I told her that, but I'll be in the guest uh, reception area. So on your way out, make sure you stop there. Um, just know that uh, it is a blessing for all of us pastors to serve you, and I hope you do well. Know that you can always reach out to us. Thank you. Love you.